This is, uh, this is an important text this morning that we're approaching, so I'd like to pray one more time before we get to it, all right? Let's pray and ask God's help. God, we need you. That's true in all of life, but we need you in a particular way this morning. We need you to help us to think biblically and to think clearly. We want our wills to be submitted to your word as your word is a source of life. Your word gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would work in us and bring us to a proper understanding of this passage and that our church would grow and be edified as a result of this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So you can turn to that text, which is Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. That's where we're going to be this morning. I have no doubt that many of you have used the word nice to describe someone close to you. And that's fine. But if you were a man a few centuries ago, and you were interested in a young woman, and you called her nice, she may slap you. Because the word nice has not always meant what it means to us today. That word came into English from Latin, and it originally meant ignorant. You better think twice before you use that word again. So over time, the word began to change, and it took on different connotations through use. It began to mean silly or foolish from ignorant. And by the 1500s, it had morphed again from silly and foolish and meant meticulous and attentive or sharp. I've never used the word that way, but all right. And then finally, by the 1800s, it changed over time to its current meaning, which is agreeable and pleasant. In a lot of ways, it's a pretty bland word now to call someone nice, but it's fine. Now, the point of this is that words change their meaning. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like someone writes some article and redefines a word, and then we all, at the same time, agree to go by that new definition. But words do change their meaning. It's slow, and it's often imperceptible. We grow up using a word in a particular way, and it shifts subtly from one generation to the next, and then in a little bit of time, it ends up meaning something completely different and sometimes even opposite of what it meant before. And this is important for us to understand as Christians because there are words that are slowly, and if we're not careful, imperceptibly to us being changed. The meaning is being altered and it's becoming something different. And if we're not careful as Christians, we can unthinkingly adopt the cultural definition of a word. And we can start to use it in the way the culture uses it. And then the danger of that is we understand that word to mean what the culture means, and we read that definition back into our Bibles. And then our perception of God changes, and the way we practice our faith changes. And we've been influenced by the world, and we don't even realize it. And so we have to be very careful of this, and we always have to define our words biblically. And that takes some effort. 
One of the words that I think is changing and should be most concerning to Christians is the word love. The dictionary definition, I looked this up, dictionary.com, where else do you go? The dictionary.com definition of love now has basically been boiled down to affection for another person, nice feelings toward another person, positive feelings. That's what it means on dictionary.com, and I think that use has been prevalent in our society. And so when you hear someone in the broader culture say, why can't we all just love one another? What they really mean is they want you to affirm them in whatever it is that they want to say or do. Love means affirmation. It means positive feelings to most people today. Love basically means a willingness to speak positively about anything that I want to say or do. And if you aren't willing to do that, you don't love me, according to most people today. So what do we do with that as Christians? Well, we go back to Scripture and we take our definition of love from God. Because God's love defines what our love looks like. The love of Christ compels us to love God and love one another. And so our love ought to mimic his love. Love. His love is the starting point. And we understand how we love one another by him and by what, by what he has done. And so what do we know about the love of God? Well, we could talk a lot about this. Just a couple of minutes here. We know about the love of God that God primarily loves himself. God is first place in his own affections and in his own heart. And it's because of this that God is first place, that when God loves us, the best thing he can do for us is give us himself and bring us to a knowledge of himself. His love for us ultimately wants what is good for us and what is best for us. That's God's love. And the greatest and highest good is to bring us to a knowledge of himself and to bring us into a relationship with him, to know him. That's love. And it's because of that truth, because that is the greatest and highest good, and because love from God means wanting what is our greatest and highest good, which is him, and bringing us to himself. It's because of that that God's love necessarily involves judgment and wrath. See, in the culture today, those words are opposite of love. But in God... His love has to have judgment and wrath in it. And it has to have judgment and wrath in it because anything that downplays his glory and anything that moves us away from him deserves his judgment and deserves his wrath. True love always involves opposition to anything that will harm the object of love. And you know that to be true. All of us live that way. You know that to be true in your own life and experience. If someone threatens to harm my family, I'm hardly a loving father if I just sort of look past that and ignore that, if I ignore the threat. That includes threats coming from within my own family. So let me give you an example of that. 
Our two-year-old, Gray, is very active, as most two-year-olds are, and he has a tendency to climb things. And oftentimes, he will climb things that are too dangerous and too tall for him. He loves it. Now, my love for Gray means that I don't simply affirm him in whatever he wants to climb and whatever he wants to do. I don't just have positive feelings toward him. My love for him wants what is best for him. And so that means that I set rules and boundaries for Gray. And that means that if he is doing something that will be harmful to him, that I want what's best for him. And so I keep him from that. In a sense, I bring down judgment on him and remove him from that situation. I discipline him when he breaks those rules because I love him, because I want what is good for him. That's love. And as the church, our love for one another is found in a desire to see one another conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is what is best for each one of us. That's what is good for us. Love for one another doesn't just mean a positive set of feelings for each other, affirmation of whatever we all want to do or say. We love one another by wanting each other to know God eternally and to be in a relationship with him. And so love means doing whatever I can to help you in that endeavor, that mission. And love for one another also means that anything that threatens that ultimate good must be challenged and must be dealt with because we love each other. And that love that we have for each other and that love that God has for us is expressed as we embrace the commands of Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. That's where we're going to be this morning. So in this passage, we're going to see two reasons to embrace the communal discipline of sin. We've been in this series, Fight for Your Life, and we're talking about fighting against sin. We started with a personal fight against sin. We went to the relational fight against sin. And now we're talking about, as a church body, what do we do to fight for good? What do we do to show that we love one another and that we want what is best for one another? How do we do that? There are times where we are required to make judgments in order to try to keep a brother or sister from damaging themselves from hurting themselves. So there are two reasons to embrace the communal discipline of sin. The first one of these is found in verses 15 through 17. And this is that the process that we're going to talk about here demonstrates the holy love of the Father. Holy love. A love that wants to make us holy. So if you weren't with us last week, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon on Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. It's very important to understand this process and these verses in light of what comes before it. And if you don't do that, if you just jump into verse 15, then you may be tempted to think that this process is legalistic, that it's harsh, and that it's unloving. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Look back up in verses 12 and 13. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. 
Now, the steps of this process in verses 15 to 17 are just the working out of the pursuit of that lost sheep in verses 12 and 13. That's what's being described here. It's details of how you go about that pursuit. In fact, if you look in verse 15, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. That go is the fulfillment of the go in verse 12. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search? So this is what the going looks like for us in our church body. This is what the loving shepherd does for us, and this is what we do for one another as a church. And so this process isn't harsh. This process is built on that parable. It's built on the holy love of God for his children. It's a love that despises anything that will harm those made in God's image. And because it despises anything that will harm those made in God's image, this love hates sin. It hates sin because sin wants to destroy us. And so if I can help my brother or sister stay away from sin, I'm going to do what I can to do that and to help them. And as we go through this process, you can even see that it is slow and it is patient. The goal here is not to embarrass the person caught in sin. The goal is to win that person back, to gain a brother or sister, to see them turn from their sin. And so this process is slow and it is patient. It's methodical, but this process does not excuse sin. It does not overlook it. It doesn't affirm the sinner in his or her sin. Quite the opposite. So what is this process? Well, there are four steps here in verses 15 through 17. And when you put these four steps together, you've probably heard this before. This is called church discipline. That's the name for it that most people use. So let's look at the first step in verse 15, the first part of verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, we know this type of thing's going to happen, right? Sin, we all sin. We live in a broken world. We are broken people. And so there are going to be times where I sin against some of you. And there are going to be times where you sin against one another. I mean, that's just the nature of life in this broken world and the nature of life in the church where people are broken by sin. And so this verse says that if a brother has sinned against you, that you go to them. Now, it says here they, specifically that they've sinned against you. And that this certainly includes those who have done something specifically against me or specifically against you. Maybe in a relationship, they've said something, some intentional sin against you. But I don't think it's limited to a person who has sinned directly against me. And I don't think it's limited because of what we saw a couple weeks ago from Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul says that if any brother is caught in any transgression, they need to be rescued. And we want to help them. We want to go in search of that, of that stray sheep. Listen as well to James chapter 5. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so this type of action is all over the New Testament, that we pursue one another when caught in sin. Notice specifically in verse 15 that when this brother sins, either against you or when this brother or sister sins and you're made aware of that sin and it's not something nitpicky, they're caught in a transgression. When this happens, what are you to do first? You are to go to that person and tell them his fault alone. Now, two aspects of this are important for us to understand. First, you approach this person privately and individually. This, I think, shows a great amount of care and a great amount of concern for the other person. You don't go and broadcast this to everyone else. Did you see what so-and-so is doing? This isn't something that you talk about publicly. It's not something you talk about with another group of believers, at least initially. This is something that you take to that person individually and privately, and you very graciously do the second part of this, which is you tell him his fault. You could translate this, you reprove him. The goal here is that you approach this person with grace and kindness, and you know they're caught in sin, and you, you try to help them to understand that they're caught in sin. Because the crazy thing about sin is it's so often we are deceived by it, and we don't even know that we're stuck in it. And so you go to this person, and you want them to see what they're doing as sin, and then you want them to turn from that sin. You want repentance to take place. And again, it, I have to emphasize, this is not over something nitpicky. You're not confronting a person over differences in personal preference or issues of Christian liberty. That's not what this is dealing with. This is a real fault. This person is in real danger. They're caught in a transgression. And you're going after them as a rescue operation. And so there are two possible outcomes when you go talk to them, right? Two possible outcomes to this private conversation. Look at the rest of verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So one of the things that may happen here, and this is beautiful when this happens, is that brother or sister who's caught in the transgression may hear you. They may listen to you. And remember, listening in the Gospels is not just letting the sound waves pass over your ears. Listening involves hearing what is taught by Jesus and responding with appropriate action. And so you go to this person and they, they hear you, they listen to you, they recognize their sin, they thank you for coming perhaps, and they repent of it and follow Christ in obedience. And if that happens, it says you have gained your brother. Sin causes disruption within the family of Christ. When we sin against one another, when we pursue a lifestyle of sin, it causes a break in relationships, it causes difficulty, and when that sin is repented of and turned from, it brings reconciliation. And a brother or a sister has been gained, they have been won back, and that is a beautiful thing. God is honored, God is glorified, and when this happens, this is where it stops. And this type of thing can happen all the time in the church body. 
And it ends here. If that is the response. That's what we all want to happen. And practicing these type of conversations with one another helps to cultivate these outcomes where it's positive. But if the sinning brother or sister doesn't repent, they don't see it as sin, they don't turn from it, then there's a second step that we engage in here. And we widen the circle of believers who are involved. Look at verse 16. Here's the second possible response. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So we widen the circle of concerned believers. And this is not a big widening of the circle. Jesus is not talking about a trial here. What he's talking about is probably people that know this person well, they're close friends with this person. It's not necessarily talking about someone who's actually witnessed the sin, but you bring them into this conversation in a godly way, and you want them to go with you to help this person see their sin and see how they've been led astray. And so you're going to this one, maybe two other people, and you're seeking wisdom, and you're seeking help. How do I approach them? What can we say to this person? What passages of Scripture can we bring to bear on the situation? Because we want to help them. Having multiple witnesses was standard Old Testament practice, and that's what he's referring to here. He's actually alluding back to the book of Deuteronomy with more than one witness. And these witnesses can testify later on to what happened with this sinning brother or sister if they don't turn from their sin. And it's not mentioned here, but the goal of this is the same goal as the first step. The goal is to restore a brother or sister. It's to gain them back. I mean, that's what we're going after here. And if it happens, if they see their sin and they turn from their sin, then the whole thing stops here. The goal is not to embarrass It's not to highlight their sin. It's to get them to stop pursuing what is so damaging to them as an individual. And it's glorious when this happens. But occasionally, a sinning brother or sister will listen to a small group of believers who are concerned for his or her soul, and they will reject that counsel, reject that admonition, They won't turn from their sin. Instead, they'll double down and continue pursuing a life of sin. And if that takes place, there's a third step. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, I was cool up until we got to this point, right? (laughs) It all sounds good. But it's easy to read this and think, man, this is where it gets really harsh and really unloving. I mean, really? You tell this person's fault to the whole church? Oh my goodness. If you're tempted to think that way, keep in mind, don't forget. Don't forget verses 12 and 13, the lost sheep. Don't forget that this whole thing is a rescue operation. The tone hasn't changed. The desired outcome hasn't changed at all. The goal here is the restoration of this person. Think for a moment if you had a child or a grandchild who is three or four years old, and they got lost in the woods, and they'd been lost for several hours, 
and a search party is organized. How many people would you want involved in that search party? Would you be satisfied if one person, maybe two, ah, this is good enough. I mean, they're probably not in great danger. We'll see what we can do tonight. They'll be fine all night out there by themselves. How would you want the search handled for that person? How would I want the search handled for one of my kids lost out in the woods? You would want as many people as possible involved in that search. And that's what this step is telling us to do. That's the goal here. The goal has not changed, but the circle has been widened. More people have been brought in because we're pursuing this sinner. Listen, God pursues sinners to the point where he is willing to enlist an entire army of believers to go after a person. That's the heart here. That's the goal here. And so, if it gets to this point, the situation is explained not in every detail. It's explained with wisdom, generically, to the entire church as a gathered body. And when it is explained, the goal is for the church to then pursue that individual and to go after that person and to call that person to repentance. Now, often when it gets to this point, after quite a long time it gets to this point, often this person will not respond and will run and try to get out of there and refuse to listen. And if that happens, then there's a fourth step. Look at the rest of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, to the army of believers who want his or her best and want to save him from this situation, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now notice the language here. This is interesting. Let him be to you. In many ways, what's happening here is when it gets to this point, the church is just accepting the reality of what this person has decided. Let him. Let him be to you. Take your hands off. You've reached a point where they are not willing to listen. And so the church is accepting the reality of the situation. What is the reality of the situation? Well, think about what would get a person to this point. After repeated, loving, gracious attempts to get this person to turn from sin, they've refused. They've looked people in the eye who love them and care for them and love them enough to be able to say something hard to them, to put their own reputation on the line and go to this person, and they've continued to refuse. And so when that happens, this person, verse 17 says, has taken the role of a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, that's interesting language there. What does that mean? Well, to this Jewish audience, a Gentile and a tax collector were both classes of people during this time that were on the outside looking in. They would have considered them pagans. Jesus isn't saying here that Gentiles and tax collectors aren't able to be saved. That's not his point. He's using an illustration that they would understand here, helping them understand the situation. And so the, what this is saying is the sinning brother or sister has effectively positioned himself or herself as an outsider, as an unbeliever. And the church must treat him or her that way. 
They're letting him go. They're recognizing what has happened. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean shunning the person. It doesn't mean being rude or mean to the person. It doesn't mean you never talk to the individual. But it does mean that they're removed from membership in the local church. We'll talk about the importance of that in a few minutes. And it does mean that their interaction with the church body changes in dramatic ways. After this whole process, it can't remain the same. The members of the church can't go on acting like everything's good and everything's fine and continuing to fellowship around the gospel with this person. All interactions at this point should be centered around a call to repentance because this person has effectively put themselves on the outside of the church, and so we want to call them to repentance, and we want to graciously continue to say, come back. We want you back. We're not shunning you. We want you to turn from your sin. But you may think, well, I have unbelieving friends who I spend time with, and so maybe it should look a little bit like that relationship does. It's not quite the same. Because they've never claimed to be a believer in Christ. They've never been a part of the church. And so when you have come to the point where you have claimed the name of Christ and people have called you to repentance and you have rejected God's commands over and over again, the church cannot act like nothing has changed, cannot act like everything is fine. Because what's the goal here? The goal is to help this person see the seriousness of their sin. It's to win back a straying brother. And the goal here is, at this point, to treat them as they are acting, to let them be what they have determined they are, and to treat them accordingly. And we treat them this way, based on their actions, because the church represents God's kingdom on earth. That brings us to our second reason. Let me explain what I mean by that. So the process demonstrates the holy love of the Father. The the kindness of God is demonstrated in this process. It's not harsh. And then secondly, the church displays the loving authority of the Father. Now, this is in verses 18 to 20. We've talked before about the church as an outpost of the kingdom of God. The church is an outpost. It's an embassy of the kingdom. What's an embassy? An embassy represents the authority of the king in a different country. The embassy abides by the laws and commands of the homeland. And as the church, we have been given the authority to act as the embassy of God on earth. That's what verse 18 is explaining to us. Look at verse 18. Truly, so this is important, right? Truly, Jesus inserts that call there for them to listen. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, this can be a confusing verse. There's no doubt about it. But what Jesus is doing here is he's connecting God's authority in heaven to the authority of the local church, the church gathered as an institution on earth. He's connecting those two. They act in concert together. So these words, binding and loosing, we don't use those words a whole lot, but those are terms of authority. 
right? You have authority over someone when you bind them, when you constrain them, and you demonstrate that authority by the fact that you can loose them from their constraints. So God works on earth through his church. The church instituted and constituted with all the marks of a local church that are given in Scripture. And when that happens, he has given his church the authority. Listen to this. He has given his church the authority to recognize to the best of their ability who is a believer and who is not based on Scripture. Now, that sounds crazy. So let me explain that. God exercises his authority on earth. How else does God work on earth right now? It's through his church. It's through his people gathered together, obeying the commands of Christ. And they're obeying his word. He exercises his authority on earth through the church as the church obeys his word. So when the church obeys the word of God and disciplines according to the process that is outlined here, they are agreeing with heaven's assessment of the situation because they're looking at scripture and saying, this is not a personal preference. This is not an issue of Christian liberty. This is a sin. And we have to recognize it that way because God has said it is in his word. And so we agree with God's word, and now we are bringing that authority of God's word to bear on this situation and on the circumstance here. They're agreeing with heaven's assessment of the situation that is made in his word. So if you read verse 18, it it can almost sound like whatever decision the, the church makes on earth, God is forced to agree with. But that's not what's being said here. Think of this like prayer. What happens in prayer? Well, there are places in Scripture where it says, ask whatever you will. Ask and you will receive. Well, we don't force God into anything when we pray, do we? But as we pray according to God's word and according to his will, which is expressed in his word, he will answer our prayers. And here, as we follow his word as the church, and we obey his word as it is related to this process of church discipline, we are representing his authority on earth. That's what we're called to do. And so the church exercises God's authority on earth in church membership and church discipline. So these are two sides of the same coin here. Let me explain what I mean by that. So the church is an outpost of the kingdom, right? It's an embassy, And so it has the authority to recognize true believers and those who are not living according to God's word, who are not true believers. That's what this verse is giving the church the authority to do. Now, that doesn't mean that the church can confer salvation on anyone. That's not what this is saying. But it does have the God-given authority and the responsibility to bind someone in membership by recognizing their profession of faith and affirming it through membership. So church membership is when you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I want to commit to this local expression of the church. I'm claiming to be part of his kingdom, and I want to place myself under the leadership of this church, and I want to, with this church body, pursue the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I want this church to shepherd me and to protect me and to advance 
my holiness in the Lord. And so church membership is when you come to the church as an institution and say that, and then the church, based on the authority given by God, recognizes that profession of faith. It's like in baptism. And they place you in the church as a, as a member of the church. The church doesn't save you. It's like an embassy. An embassy doesn't grant citizenship. But what does an embassy do? An embassy affirms, identifies, and recognizes citizenship and makes a judgment call. Yes, you are a citizen based on what we can see here. No, we don't think you're a citizen. We don't know for sure, but our judgment call here is that we don't think you are. And so the church identifies believers formally through membership, just like an embassy recognizes citizens. And then on the flip side of that, the church looses people who it deems to be unsaved or at least acting like an unbeliever, and it looses them through church discipline. That's what this process ends in. Again, let me just stress this so it's not confusing. The church does not condemn anyone to hell. The church has no authority and no power to do that, but it does have the authority on earth to make a judgment call based on the scriptures and say, we don't think based on what this person is living like and based on what the scriptures say that they are acting like a believer. And we followed through this process and we've gotten to this point, so we're going to let them go as a tax collector and a Gentile here. And the church does all of this based on God's word and as the church exercises his heavenly authority on earth. That's what verse 18 is teaching. Now, that sounds like a weighty responsibility. And it is. And this is not just a responsibility given to the elders. This is given to the church body as a whole. We're all in this together. That's why you tell it to the church as a whole, because we're all responsible for this corporately as a body. And that's why these promises that are given in verses 19 and 20 are so magnificent. Look at verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Again, this is not a blanket promise, right? That if I can find a couple of you to pray with me and ask the Lord for a Mercedes Benz, that tomorrow morning, lo and behold, there will be one in my driveway. That's not what this is telling us to do. But this is a promise. This is a promise that as the church obeys what God has given us in his word, and as the church in unity, where two or more are gathered together, unified around God's word and what God's word teaches and what God's word requires of us in our lives, as that happens, God is supportive of what you're doing. He will guide and he will protect that process. It's not an arbitrary process. As it is enacted by the word of God, God promises to be with those. That's what verse 20 says. Look there. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I'm sorry to tell you, but this is not about prayer meetings. This verse. That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about God's presence with small numbers of Christians. It's a promise 
that as the church obeys God's word in this process of church discipline, as it exercises its authority, that God will be with the church. You can see that the whole thing here, the key is is in verse 20. They're gathered in my name, right? That's That's the key to the whole thing. It's not just a random process that they go through. They're gathered in his name. They're agreeing in his name. This is how we're supposed to pray, according to the will and the word of God. And they're supposed to pursue this process according to the will and word of God. They're supposed to do everything in this in a way that honors and glorifies God. This is not an easy passage. And it's not an easy process to embrace. But I have to tell you, God could not be more clear about the importance of this. I mean, he's explicit here from the mouth of Jesus. And I am convinced that this is a watershed passage of Scripture. And it's watershed in the sense that do we really trust God's Word? Do we actually read what he's written in Scripture and say, hmm, I know a little bit better. I'm a bit more of an authority here. I don't want to obey this. I know better. Do we trust that he is good when he speaks and he knows what he is doing? Because if we do, then we'll obey the commands here. And I think the beauty of this passage is found in verses 19 and 20. And it's those promises of support and presence for the church as the church, all of us together, try to honor Christ in the way we pursue holiness. God is good and he loves us, as we started out by talking about. But his love for us is not a cheap, sentimental affirmation of any way we might want to live. His love for us is a love that was willing to sacrifice his own son in order to make us holy. It is a holy love. He sacrificed his own son so that you and I could be delivered from sin, not so we could live and pursue sin in our lives and the rest of our church body could just wink at it and go, eh, I don't want to intrude. His love is a love that makes us holy and brings us into his presence as holy people to live with him forever. That's what love means. And that is a love that we ought to be willing to embrace. Let's pray. Father, these are heavy things. And this tells us how seriously you take our holiness. This tells us how seriously we ought to take the local church. This is not a casual thing that we do each and every Sunday, Lord. What we're doing on Sundays as we gather together as an embassy of your kingdom is of eternal significance. There is a pressure and a weight to our interaction with your word that has massive consequences for our lives and for our eternal destinies. But as we look at this weight this morning, Lord, there is a great joy 
in understanding that your love for us is a holy love, that your love for us does not leave us in our sin to be ravaged by it, but your love for us is willing to go to unbelievable lengths to pursue a lost sheep. Your love for us is willing to sacrifice your own son so that we could know you and be with you in your presence for all of eternity. We are so thankful that we are the objects of that love, not of our own choosing, but on your choice and your goodness. We thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray.